All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another day to worship you through the study of your precious word, the same word that Holy Scripture describes as the Logos, the very bread of life. For he, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our sustenance. He is life in us. He is the one who willingly took on the penalty of our sin so that he might become our Lord. He is the one we adore, Father, for even as you have stated, he is your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. We pray, Father, for those still lost in this world that you might find their hearts humble at some point and that you might grant them eternal life so that we may enjoy eternity together. We pray also for those not able to be with us this morning due to illness. May their hearts be strengthened and their hope affirmed to the end. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, this morning's message title is the difficult, quote-unquote, difficult passages. Remember, I have that in quotations because the Bible is not difficult in of itself. Man tends to complicate things uh, for and towards his own end. Uh, And as a result of perverting such fundamental truths in the Bible as grace and works. And that's right. said those in the same sentence there's a lot of hoopla going around that doesn't or disallows these two words these precious words to occur in the same sentence even people are sort of have sort of demonized uh, such sentences grace and works I mean of course they go together of course they do and those uh, that's the sort of the avenue that we've been taking as a congregation to sort of ferret out of Scripture, to understand how does grace and works, or how do grace and works fit together, biblically speaking. And if it's that simple, what does the Bible have to say? My discernment concerning, I'll begin this way, my discernment concerning the import of our lessons as of late is always affirmed when I see people being tugged away from class. I even look out today, there's a few people missing. Well, that usually coincides magically with the amount of information and the import of the lessons themselves. People get dragged away. And there are often myriad excuses but as the Spirit has instructed me to speak from this pulpit, those are exact, that's exactly what they are. They're excuses. And I'm not talking about physical ailments, things like that, legitimate reasons. I'm talking about, quote, life itself dragging people away. And it always happens when lessons like this are being taught. And it tends to happen with the people that need to hear them the most. That's the most amazing thing from my perspective is the people that need to hear the lessons the most 
are the ones most likely to make up or have some ridiculous excuse as to why they're not here. And that's just the way it goes. So what I see is very simple. I mean, it's not difficult from my perspective. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of priorities. It seems most American Christians don't have their priorities straight. And that's really what it comes down to. Their priorities are all screwed up because they've bought into this lie that the world has peddled. Yet, I was thinking about it for a moment. Imagine for a moment if Jesus didn't have his priorities straight when it came to dying on the cross for your sins. Imagine if he didn't have his priorities straight and you can't manage to get yours straight. Imagine for a moment that Jesus didn't have his priorities. Oh, whoa, whoa, stop the presses. No, I don't like that at all. Darn straight you don't like it at all. The flesh loves to take. Gimme, 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 gimme. God only knows how many of you are on a thin thread right now, maybe. Maybe you stayed up too late. Maybe you drank too much last night. Maybe you exhausted yourselves this whole weekend. And now you're here with like this. When can I get my coffee? Imagine if that was Jesus on the cross. Somebody get me a coffee. I don't think I can make it. Sounds ridiculous, right? But it, that's, that's man for you. That's human nature. It's incredible, the audacity of man. And I'm just thinking aloud, my dear sheep. I'm just thinking aloud. These are the kind of things that I have to live with. These are the kind of emotions even that I have to go through watching my own sheep run themselves into walls and make horrible decisions day after day after day. And the only way I can say they're horrible is because whatever takes you away from the Word is no good. That's how I know. I don't know exactly what you people are doing. I really don't want to know. Thank you very much. But I know you're doing something other than learning the Word of God. It's very frustrating for a guy who spends hours upon hours writing blogs and then he goes up to one of his sheep, say a week after the thing's published, and say, what would you think of that blog? I have no idea. I didn't read it. I haven't read the last three. Very frustrating for a guy who lays down his life for sheep. I can't imagine the love that hung on a cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At least I'm not on a cross. At least I'm not dying. Anyways, and I hope you realize that's nothing to do with me. This isn't about Pastor Ed moaning and groaning about his calling. I don't even do this for you. I do it for him. You're a part of it, but my main priority is my Lord. If he wanted me to teach to the piano, I would teach to the piano. The angels would be like, just don't put your fingers on there because you can't play music. <laughs> Anyways. Changing gears a little bit. That was just an opening thought that I've been dealing with. I want to begin with the same balance statement I, get, I began with on Thursday, something that was prompted 
by the firmness of our preceding lessons on God's choice in saving man. I've actually gone out because I didn't want anybody to become confused. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a whole theology out there that says since God chooses man, man doesn't have a choice as if to make man a, a robot. I don't want you to think that because man has a free will. But I do want to teach you what the Bible says, that it's true, that no one comes to the Son unless God draws them to himself through the Son. That's Scripture. But the Scripture also says you need to believe, you need to repent, you need to have faith. So there's this sort of thing between the free will of man and God's sovereign will. So I want to begin with a balance statement up here on the board. I just don't want anybody to become lopsided whenever there's that much emphasis on salvation being God's sovereign choice, which it is. No one has ever been saved unless God has chosen to save them. So the balance statement is the paradox between God's choosing and election and man's free will ought never be a cause for consternation or confusion. Rather, a perfect time to exercise faith. I mean, I teach this stuff. I can't, I can't teach you everything about what happens at salvation. I can't teach you about precisely what God sees in an individual when he chooses to save them or when he chose to save them. I mean, I, don't, I know what the Bible says. But that's as far as I can take it. That's why I will never, ever, again in my life, I hope, ever, catch myself saying, oh, that person's saved and that one's not. Oh, that one's saved and that one's not. It's not my business. How the heck would I ever know? I'm not God. But I know what the Bible says. I just don't want anyone to become lopsided. That's the point. One way to help reconcile this you know, so-called paradox is to consider the following up here on the board, ask yourselves, who do you believe opened your eyes to the gospel? You or God? Hint, you were born in complete darkness. Who do you think opened your eyes then? You or God? You were born in darkness. So even when the word Jesus said, repent, or his disciples said, repent, in darkness, if you were to remain in darkness without any guidance or any grace whatsoever from God the Holy Spirit, you'd say, from what? You'd turn around and say, it's all dark to me. That's God's grace. Repentance, even. So the call is to repent, but you'll never repent unless God grants it, so says Scripture. I guess we really do have nothing to do with our own salvation other than whatever that state of heart is that God finds, that God chooses to save. The Bible clearly states that salvation is a grace work of God and that man has no part in delivering himself from spiritual death. Yet the Bible clearly instructs man to repent and have faith. Between these two realities lies the 
hyperbalo. We studied that Greek word hyperbalo, the surpassing supernatural reality that is salvation itself. Between these two things, God saves, man has some thing to do with it, not in the actual work, but something. God sees the heart. That's the surpassing supernatural reality that is salvation itself. You see, as the Spirit will continue to drive home this morning, salvation, while there is an element of human consideration to it, is not a rational decision, strictly speaking. It's not. How could it be? It's supernatural. Therefore, it's not a rational decision, strictly speaking. When I say rational, I'm bringing into view human intellect. Because you get into the rational realm of human intellect, then it becomes a hedged bet. Like the rich young ruler, what must I do to gain eternal life? He was hedging a bet. Salvation is not a rational decision, strictly speaking. In other words, if salvation were dependent on human rationalism, man would find other ways to invent alternative ways to heaven. Right? Man, we know, was a wonderful inventor. Sound like the Tower of Babel? What were they trying to do? Sound like uh, the Pharisees with their, quote, law-abiding religion? It should. Sound like today's perverted gospel? It should. Concentrate. Once man believes he has the ability to rationalize God, he believes he has control. Once man believes he has the ability to rationalize God, he now believes he has control. And once he has control, he naturally turns the tables around and believes he has the ability to put God on trial. The conversation turns from, thank you for saving me, Lord, to, you're welcome. I know how much you wanted to save me. Doesn't that just make you wince a little bit? It's all about perspective. It reminds me of a teenager who, as a result of weak parenting, among other things, has got their parents back on their heels. You see it all the time. You know the scene. Somehow the parents become uh, subservient even to the child's sort of imposing self-will. You know that scene where now the parents are on their heels, where the teenager has got the parents begging them, the teenager, to repent from their sins. Now there might be a heartfelt conversation but that's not what the Spirit's getting at. It's a matter of perspective. It's this sort of changing, this shift from true authority orientation to some perversion, where the 
one that's supposed to be submissive is now in control. So step back and look at this scene in your head, and if you can't picture it, let me draw it for you up here on the board. I know, didn't I just say I'm not drawing anyone? <laughs> and that's so funny. I'm like, I'm drawing this thing. I'm like, they're going to laugh because you just told them you're not going to draw anymore. But this isn't really about me trying to drive theology home. It really isn't. This is a natural occurrence, okay? And I don't want you to make this doctrine. It's just an observation. So stop laughing. <laughs> you see on the left there, let me see. I got this new fangled thing up here. See if I can draw. Check this out. You see on the left, oh, nice, huh? Is righteous authority. And this is the way it's supposed to be. With God on the left, who delegates authority to parents, right? And the idea of sovereignty flows through this delegation. In other words, God's up here, holy and righteous, and he delegates his authority. And there's the little child saying, I repent. Under the emphasis of righteous authority. Now, what has happened with authority, uh-oh, this is what happens, here we go. What has happened with authority is this that the roles have changed. And if you can imagine this, this is what I see when I see weak parents and strong teenagers nowadays. The teenagers got their hands on their hips and say, maybe I will, maybe I won't. What have you done for me lately? And you got these parents like pathetic little beggars, not like Christ at all begging for their children to repent, begging for their children to come to church, begging for their children to realize the sovereignty of God. And the kids are standing there making, you know, this posture, this perversion of authority. Do you see the scene? Where instead of them being on their knees begging forgiveness, to a holy God and his delegates even, it, the whole thing is flipped around. And they've got God himself and his delegates supposedly on their knees. That is a... How else can you describe that other than grotesque? That is a grotesque scene. Yet it is carried out in most households nowadays, it seems. The Bible clearly states that authority is not designed to beg subordinates for compliance. Show me that in the Bible, I'll teach it. But it's not there. I see a sovereign God who makes demands, says all authority is from me, and I want you to obey it. So authority is not designed to beg subordinates for compliance. That is a contemporary perversion. In America, oh my goodness. My America, I think, has got to be on the leading, bleeding edge of propagating this to the world. That I'm convinced of. This beloved country of ours, 
is lost, especially when it comes to authority. Up here on the board, God is holy and sovereign. Do not forget that. Authority is designed to demand compliance. That's what authority is. These are the rules. These are my commands. This is the law. Obey it. That's the fundamentals of authority. It's designed to demand compliance. God is the sovereign authority in the universe, yet man has postured himself like a typical teenager, supposing God ought to beg him for his submission. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Sorry, man. It doesn't work that way, especially not with the gospel. God is sovereign. Do you get it? Sovereign and holy. He's not. <laughs> we know He loves us and desires for people to be saved. We know this, to come to know Him for their benefit. But He's not about to beg anyone. So why would, say, a parent do it? Let's do a really quick survey on authority orientation in the Bible. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. I'm going to go through these very quickly because this is not the, you know, the gist of our lesson, so to speak, but it certainly does set it up. Matthew 28, 18. <clears throat> And nowhere is this more dangerous, this idea of this flip of perspective, more dangerous than with the gospel. Matthew 20, 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority, that's all. I don't, I, I don't see it. It's probably pause in the Greek, which is all. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Any questions? Seriously. Any questions? No. All authority. Okay, how about Romans 13.1? Go there. Romans 13.1. Romans 13.1. Another gem. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That means whether you like it or not, if you live in this country, you're supposed to abide by the law. Right? There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Any questions? How about Acts 5.29? Acts 5.29. Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey who? God, rather than men. Go to 2 John 9, 2 John 1, 9. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying here, that God is the sovereign authority, 
2 John 1 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Abiding in teaching is equivalent to abiding in authority because the Word is all authority. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. This one always makes me wonder, not because it's me, but because what, I mean, I honestly think about this sometimes. What do, what do sheep actually think of, what, is, what do the sheep say when the pastor stands behind the pulpit? Not me, just the pastor, you know, like the office, the one that's ordained by God. Um, what do they say to themselves when he says, hey, do, you, you need to do this thing, do this homework, read this blog, read this book, blah, blah, blah. And they don't. What, do they, what are they saying to themselves? What are they saying to God? And it's not about me. It's about the grace of God saying, here, do this thing. And then you say, no, I don't want to. What are they saying? That, that, like, I think about that kind of stuff. What are they actually saying? I'm not offended because I know it has nothing to do with me. It's between them and the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and what? Submit. Oh, that's a quiet word, isn't it? Submit. Submit. Obey your leaders and what? Thank you. Oh, Tammy. For they keep watch over your souls. You forget that kind of stuff? Seriously. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Why don't you read the blogs? Why don't you read all the books I've written? Why haven't you read the books I've suggested you read? Get, get, oh. Yeah, it's amazing. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief this would be unprofitable for you. How about 1 Timothy 5.17? I didn't pick the order of these, by the way. This is the way they came up, so I'm not trying to impose anything on you. 1 Timothy 5.17, but it is Scripture, and my job is to teach Scripture. Whether it has something to do with me or not is not the issue. It's whether or not it's true. The elders, that would be me. In case you were wondering. Who rule well ought to be considered worthy of half honor. Oh, no. Oh, and it scratched that. Scratch that. That's the, that's the New American Contemporary Perverted Bible translation. <laughs> the elders who rule well ought to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That's authority. Go to 1 Peter 2.18. 1 Peter 2.18. I mean, those are the kind of verses, like the one in Timothy there, those are the kind of verses I wonder about when I have to have our treasurer come up here and say, hey, we're short on 
funds. How's that work? How's that work? You know, my salary comes from those funds, and I have a family to support. So it's a wonder how that ends up happening. Some of you are off gallivanting around doing this, that, and the other, and you give peanuts in the basket. You give peanuts, like literally pocket change, leftovers. It's, a, it's amazing. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you, if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So that's, that's, the Bible saying, stop trying to find loopholes. Well, you know, this authority's no good. And that authority's, you know, he's not doing it right. Or this one's not doing it right. Or that, you know, you're always henpecking at the authority. Stop it. Your life would be a lot easier if you just accepted the authority in your life and submitted to it. Ask anybody who's actually done it. Colossians 3.22, go there. Colossians 3.22. Authority is a massive subject in the Bible, if you haven't figured it out yet. And it's for your own benefit. That's the, thing that, that's the thing that people don't seem to get. It's actually for your benefit, for the, for the subordinate's benefit. If you think I'm in this for the sordid gain, or someone else is in it for the sordid gain, or something like that, especially in the church, then, then leave. But if you're going to submit, then submit. I have this conversation actually with Tammy all the time about authority orientation. It's not real authority orientation if you only obey when you agree with the authority. Do you, let me say that again. It's not real authority orientation if you only obey when you agree with the authority. That's not authority orientation at all. That's you playing games. Saying you're authority oriented, but you're really not. Colossians 3.22, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. You see how wide authority goes? If it's all under his authority, then even those who are your masters on earth, obey them. Not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. That's your motivation, by the way. Just like I intimated to you what it's like to stand behind this pulpit day in and day out. My ultimate motivation is for the Lord. I mean, if I depended on you, I'd be heartbroken. And I've quit. I would have quit a long time ago. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done in that without partiality. Now, since all authority is from God, his demand, being the sovereign over all authority, is to obey his authority. That's his command. 
He says, all authority is mine. Obey my authority. And if it's delegated, which it often is, then obey that too, because I'm the one who delegated it. But, but, up here on the board again, God is holy and sovereign. Authority is designed to demand compliance. God is the sovereign authority of the universe, yet man has postured himself like a typical teenager, supposing God ought to beg him for his submission. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It doesn't work that way. Now, especially bringing all of that, the theme of authority, I hope you got it, Nowhere is that more important than with the gospel. We're talking about life and death here. We're not talking about post-salvation issues and, you know, the temptations of the flesh. We're not talking about that. We're bringing it all the way back to the gospel now, where this same theme applies. Even, arguably, in a much greater way, let's face it. Now, you might be asking yourselves, you know, where are we going with this, with authority orientation? But part of me tends to think that those of you asking that question are among those who haven't been receiving God's grace. It's the same person, do you see? At least not all of it. It's the same person who becomes the, the moron, the sophomore, the teenager-like person who questions authority, just like you're doing right now, just like you've done in your own soul, some of you, right now. You know, I'm not, I'm not digging this guy today. What's he doing? Why does he, he get that queer vest on for? Like, seriously, he's wearing pink and a vest. Should we worry? You know, sometimes he has me do stuff like this just so you, you'll realize how stupid you are. No, I'm serious. Yeah, that's right. The guy with the pink tie and the vest is up here teaching you. Is the anointed one of God teaching all of you who you're supposed to submit to. That's right, the pink tie and the vest. Submit. Some of you are like, oh. Don't you, you guys, you don't understand, do you? A lot of you don't understand. This is his doing. Whatever I wear, I could come up here, I don't want to say it because I don't want anybody to get sick, but naked, right? And, and if that's what he wanted me to do, I hope he doesn't. But maybe he would to teach you guys a lesson. That it's not, it's not about me. Where's he going with this? You know, when I think about that, I do really think that way. People that ask those kinds of questions are the same morons that don't take all of his grace. They're the same ones who don't have their priorities straight. Same ones. Always trying to find fault with the vessel. That's just an excuse. That's just a person trying to justify their screwed up priorities. Someone who's trying to change that thing instead of the sovereignty of God it's them they're making themselves the sovereignty I'm the captain of my own ship sound familiar three people yeah these three people read the blog the rest of you are like I have no idea what he's talking about blog you write blogs <laughs> all I can tell you is this authority orientation a person who doesn't receive God's grace is arrogant. It sounds bizarre. We had a conversation with my mom and DJ before everyone else showed up this morning. It sounds bizarre that someone wouldn't receive God's grace. 
Why wouldn't you receive all of God's grace? The reality is that an arrogant person doesn't want all of it. Why? Because the flesh always wants some creature credit. The flesh always wants something that it can point to, that it did for itself. That's arrogance. A person who doesn't receive God's grace is arrogant. The Bible is grace. Your ability to read is grace. Your pastor is grace. His blogs and books are grace. These are all grace provisions. Your whole life is grace. Anyone stop breathing this, this morning? Yeah, oxygen, grace. Your lungs, grace. We got people right now that are in the hospital. I think of Frank all the time. I think of my sister Kathy. I don't know what's going on with her. Like all these people that can't even be here that want so badly to be here, and they can't. Think about that. You're breathing healthy. Some of you are like, oh, I got a splitting headache, though. Too much vino, too much vino. Vino's wine. Not the restaurant. You understand? Your whole life is grace. But I don't want all of that. Because I like my little place over here in the world. If you reject any of these things, you are proving yourself arrogant. You are rejecting authority. That's true. Now, before we get too far into the realm of authority orientation, let's get back to where we were on Thursday. Take all that with you. Keep in mind why the Spirit's bringing up authority orientation in the middle of our study on grace and works, especially concerning grace. Now, let's review that wonderful passage that we read together on Thursday with the following in the forefront of our minds up here on the board. Ephesians 1 and 2. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation in Ephesians 1 through 2.7 before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 is wonderful, but it's impregnated. The whole thing, it's, it's, you know, the just add water, it's impregnated. You don't just take two verses in the Bible and hang your hat on that. Do you understand? You have to understand, what does it mean? What, what does that mean? By grace through faith I've been saved. Okay, what saved mean? For some of you, you didn't even realize that until a year ago, until six months ago, what truly being saved actually was. That it wasn't just a free trip to heaven from hell, it was much more. So you can't just go to one verse or your little favorite knick-knacky you know, verses and say, I got this down, Pat. No, you don't. No, you don't. God is not only just and righteous, He is holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. Go to Ephesians 1.1. We'll read this quickly. When you realize how much God has done for you, or it does for a believer, I should say, at salvation, then you realize how little it would be just to think that it, some gavel came down and that was the end of it. You understand much more about His grace. Ephesians 1.1 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us, who chooses us? He chose us for salvation. No man has ever chosen himself for salvation, no matter how much he, quote, wanted it. God doesn't choose you, you're not chosen. End of story. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, (coughs) according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is what we saw on Thursday when we read the whole of Ephesians 1 and 2. It was grace and glory and grace and glory. He gives grace to His glory. He gives grace to His glory. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Jump to verse 18. Verse 18. On Thursday we read the whole of this, but since this is review, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, there's more authority for you, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead. Necros, in your trespasses and sins. It seems like people like that little analogy. I thought it was grotesque, but people seem to be loving it. If you're roadkill and you're dead as a doorknob in the middle of the road, you don't get up and walk to God. You're dead. Dead things don't move. Dead things aren't alive. Dead things can't ambulate. They can't even motivate. They're dead. You get it? That's how you were born. Spiritually, dead. What hope did you have? None, except for God. None. But it says repent. How do I do that? God gives it to you. Well, that's what I'm going to tell you. That's the Bible. Up here on the board. We know this, though, for a fact, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead refers to spiritual death. Complete separation from the light. That means you're born in darkness. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. A dead creature cannot reconcile themselves to the holy God of the universe. It's not even his work. Some people be like, but I don't care. I just don't want to go to hell. Just give me the free ticket to heaven. That's not how it works. You're dead. It's not about a free ticket to hell. Hell's where you go when you die in your sins, dead. So the issue is not about heaven and hell. It's about being born dead. And that God needs to make you alive and through His Son. (laughs) 
Verse 1 again, Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You see the antithesis to authority orientation? There you go. The sons of disobedience. Among them we too all are formerly, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. This is where we came from, remember indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, we're going to get to that, I don't even think we're going to get here again this morning, but this idea of the new nature is looming. It's been in my notes now for over a week. We just haven't gotten to it. But remember this idea of you being born with the nature of the children of wrath, being born dead, your very nature, not just a judicial reality that does exist, not just concerning the penalty of sin, but sin itself. The dominion of sin itself, your nature, you were born, your nature was tied to that. And when you understand that's your real predicament, you understand it's not just about a gavel. It's not just some judicial or forensic reality that we can so-called point to in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's much bigger. We were by nature born dead in sin. And we need to be delivered. That's what salvation means, right? Deliverance. From what? From that! To being alive in Christ Jesus. Who's going to do that? You? You, you're, 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 You're dead. You can't even see in the darkness. What do you, you don't even know where to go. By nature, children of wrath, even as the rest, up here on the board. By nature, children of wrath, the very nature of the unsaved is unholy, living in the lusts of their flesh, Ephesians 2, 3, as opposed to the saved who have been given a new nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. This is wholly consistent with being dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. Up here on the board, what about nature? 2 Peter 1.4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So you see, in salvation, God changes our very nature. He doesn't just say, I'm going to take your little account and you know, take it from a debit to a credit. That happens. That's imputed righteousness. Okay, great. But he says, the problem is, your nature, your your very nature was this way, and I'm going to make you new this way. And you're going to partake in my nature. Because then you'll be able to spend all of eternity with me. Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, great motivation for grace and mercy was love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Do you see how salvation... Look at Paul's not even writing about a gavel at this point, is he? 
He's talking about natures. He's talking about being delivered. He's talking about being changed. He's talking about going from being dead to alive. Dead to alive. You see the difference? Dead versus alive. By grace you have been saved. See, salvation no longer becomes just this little thing, this point in time back in our little history, you know, we got a little mark on, the, on our wall when we grew up to a certain amount, and then right next to it says, I was saved. That's no longer what salvation is, how we conceive it appropriately. God did much, much more and desires to do much, much more, and that's what he does up here on the board. Even when dead made us alive, this means that being born spiritually dead precludes any man from saving himself or contributing anything righteous to the equation. God's grace includes all aspects of salvation, including the call to repentance and saving faith, two sides of the same coin. Verse 5 again. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive, Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love that because in the ages to come, that includes anything in front of us. It's the future statement. And there's so much grace we don't even still don't fully understand. But we know it's bigger than just a gavel coming down. That's what he's saying. Up here on the board. That's hyperbolo, surpassing, surpass, exceed, transcend. In context, refers to God's grace performing works in man that even believers cannot fully understand yet. Same word is used in 2 Corinthians 3.10 and Ephesians 3.19. I'll give you that up here on the board. Ephesians 3. Uh, actually, I'll give you 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond, that's the first root word in Hooper Balo, Hooper, beyond Hooper, all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Up here in the board. We see grace, we see glory. We see grace, we see glory. God loves to shower us with grace. Why? Because it brings glory to Him. How dare man try to hack it up and keep a little bit of that work to himself, especially at salvation. To Him be the glory. God's plan for salvation brings glory to Him. This means that all grace applied to man's account is to accommodate His glory, not man's. We are merely partakers of His glory, though still very real to each believer. As Jesus stated, I am the vine, believers are the branches. It means we can't do anything without Him, in other words. Our sustenance, the bread of life, every bit of it, including our salvation, is through Him. John 15, 5. The Father is the vine dresser. John 15, 1. That means it's really His plan for salvation. Sort of His role. He's the quote, architect of the whole thing. All of this good work 
was foundational to establishing our previous principle up here on the board. Ephesians 1.2, you must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation in Ephesians 1 through 2.7 before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2.8 and 9. So in other words, don't just go read any verse for that matter, like John 3.16, or I think it's 1 John 3.16 uh, 3, as well. Don't just read those things and say, see, I have eternal life because I believe this thing and God sent the Son. And, you know, but look, every little word. I think it was, um, I want to say it was Barnhouse that used to say this, like an upside-down pyramid. The entire weight of the rest of Scripture lies inside of that word. So you don't just read a word, suppose you understand it fully, and then run along because it accommodates you. What does it mean to be saved? Isn't that what we should be evangelizing people with? Because I would argue that most people evangelize, especially in our own country, this way. Do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? Yes. Do you want to go to hell? No. Believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and you'll go to heaven. Sounds good to me. Not God is sovereign. You are not. He is holy. You're unholy. He's God. You're ungodly. That's how you were born. You were born spiritually dead in sin. Get away from me. Nobody wants to talk that way, though, do they? No. They'd much rather flip a coin off the kid's forehead. John 3.16. Let's make it easy. Let's make it accommodating. Let's, let's accommodate our own selfish desires because, God forbid, I think one of my own children might not be saved. I'd much rather just live this lie. La, 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 la. They believed when they were this big. Yep, I held them up by their arms. They couldn't walk yet. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, let me baptize them when they're an infant. Let me do that. That makes a lot of sense because they know what the heck they're talking about. Do <laughs> you see the ridiculousness of man and how man tries to control God? Man wants to be sovereign. Man says, I'll figure out a way to heaven. I'll just do it. God is not only just and righteous, He is holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. All right, go back now to Ephesians 2.8. So all of that should give us a certain emphasis on Ephesians 2.8 now. And Ephesians 1 and through 2.7 is still not the end of it all. I'm just suggesting that whenever you read Ephesians 2.8 and 9, you start with Ephesians 1 first. 1. Lest you forget. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. My goodness. Talk about an upside-down pyramid. By grace you have been saved through faith. <laughs> Seriously. Grace? Humongous. Saved? Humongous. Faith? Humongous. These are massive terms. Not things that, you know, jiggle around in our pockets like pocket chains. Like, you know, oh, look at that. I found, I found a little grace. <laughs> That's grace. can fit on the face of a coin. Salvation fits right on the face of a coin. Imagine that. These are massive concepts. And we should present them that way to those we're evangelizing. 
because that's what the gospel demands. God's infinite. He's infinitely holy, infinitely sovereign, infinitely powerful, infinitely all-knowing, etc., etc. That's who he is. We should present them that way. Not some little begging, scrawny little God-man who's begging for you to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. You see, the magnitude and pervasiveness of God's grace in full view by reading all of the preceding verses up to verse 8. At that point, verses 2, 8, and 9 take on a fuller expression once you understand the fullness of God's grace. Let me ask you a question up here on the board. Regarding Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 especially, if a person doesn't understand what it means to be saved, for example, that they are saved from sin, not from hell, for example, how will they ever fully understand this magnificent passage? They cannot. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. What saved me? Honestly, if a person doesn't understand what they're being saved from, doesn't understand that they were born dead and they need to be made alive in Christ, that they're in complete darkness with nothing good, totally depraved, and that doesn't jive with the holy God of the universe, the sovereign God, that those things don't mix and they never will unless He chooses them. That's, if they don't understand that, and if we're not presenting that gospel, what are we doing? Honest to goodness, what, what are we doing? Other than insulting God the Holy Spirit. What are we doing? If a person doesn't understand what it means to be saved, what do they say to themselves when they read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? They can make it up. They can invent it. We're saved from sin, which is another humongous thing. You don't have to understand all of it to be saved. You have to understand the nature of it. That you were born as a, ch a child, the nature of children of wrath, the sons of disobedience, that that's how you were born. How many people start that conversation when they give the gospel that way? Honestly, how many people... Start the conversation that way. It's like a fast forward. Oh, I get to stay out of heaven? I like that one. I'll take that one. I get to stay out of hell? I like that one. Likewise, up here on the board, a person who rejects all of God's grace at salvation rejects salvation itself. When I say all of it, I'm saying the whole package. Not bits and pieces of it. A person who rejects all of God's grace, leaves certain things out as considerations for later, rejects salvation itself. Because how could that be? How could it be that God would say, I'm going to let you keep who you are, this, this corrupt nature, and I'm going to let you bring it into the fold of the great shepherd, my son, the Lord and Savior. Those things are mutually exclusive. 
It doesn't work that way. Any gospel that purports such a thing is a false gospel. You don't get to keep it. Jesus Christ said what? You got to lose yourself. What does it cost a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Everything. Everything. This is the world. This is what you were born into. A person who rejects all of God's grace and salvation rejects salvation itself. Such a person is akin to the rich man in Luke 18, 18, who wanted eternal life but wanted to keep his self-life up here on the board. Luke 18, 18 to 19, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why did he say that? Jesus knew the man wasn't interested in him, didn't even believe in him. He just wanted to gain something else. In other words, that's very telling scripture right there. I hope you see it. Because here's Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, standing there, and the guy says, what can you give me so that I can get to heaven, basically? I want this thing. And then you know how the story goes. He says, well, then get rid of your little self-problems, all your ties to the self-life, because you can't take those with you. And he walks away. And Jesus says, see? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to get that guy to follow me because he doesn't want me. He wants a grab bag. He wants to be sovereign because as it is, he's a young ruler and he likes the taste of rulership in the world. All of you up-and-comers who are getting promotions and all that kind of stuff, remember this lesson before you get tempted into thinking you're something you're not. Remember this lesson, my friends. What are you seeking? Are you seeking God's grace? Are you seeking things for yourself? Because there is a huge chasm between the two. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, knowing what was in this person's heart, saying, This guy's just trying to hedge a bet. He's not ready to give up the self-life yet. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Because <laughs> Jesus saw. One last thought on this magnificent passage. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's impossible. Do you hear that? Not kind of, not maybe, not something that can be reconciled later on as another consideration. There's not two different kinds of believers. There's one. It's impossible for God's grace to pronounce a person righteous judicially and quote-unquote allow them to remain in the domain of sin. It's impossible. Because God says, I'm going to deliver you from death to life. That's the change. I'm going to change your very nature. I'm going to make you a new creature. I'm going to do all these wonderful things. That's what my grace is going to do. Deliver you from the throes, if you would, of sin itself. Not just the destination of someone who dies in that condition, which is hell, but sin itself. That's the conversation we need to have because that's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It presents that situation. You're born in sin, dead. And you need a Savior. 
So it's impossible for God. His own integrity wouldn't allow it. His own righteousness wouldn't allow it. It's impossible for God's grace to pronounce a person righteous judicially and quote-unquote allow them to remain in the domain, uh, the, the, excuse me, the domain of sin. Salvation is not merely a judicial issue. It is an issue of life and death. But today's gospel has whittled it down into a gavel. Boom. You said you believe. Boom. You're saved. Next. Boom. You're saved. Let me get a rubber stamp. Boom. 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 Hey, come down the aisle, kids. Come on. Come on. You believe? Yeah. Boom. 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 Let me open up your Bibles to page one so I can stamp it in there. You were saved at such and such a church on this day. Boom. 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 Three thousand were saved. Write that up. Hurry up. Write it up. Put it on the website. 3,000 were saved. Six months later, none of them are even around. A year later, half of them are discounting Christ altogether. How in the world is that possible? It's not. They weren't saved. Some of them. Hopefully some were. That's not for me to decide. But this is an issue of life and death. So concentrate. To reject, really concentrate. I know I'm pulling a lot of things together, but you need to pull them together. To reject this is fundamentally the same thing as rejecting grace. And I really hope you see this. It is critical, and it is precisely why this account with a young ruler is written in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Because it is a huge point. There's a lot of people that seek eternal life. There's a lot of people who love the idea of eternal life, love the idea of perfect happiness forever and ever and ever. Who wouldn't want that? But have never, ever seriously considered even their own depravity. And when the God, the Holy Spirit, tries to impress that thing on them, they push them aside. Not now. Give me heaven. I'll decide on him later. It's not how it works, my friends. It's not how it works. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the author and perfecter of our faith, you know, Jesus Christ, that's not what he said at all. Time and time again, he says, you don't accept me, you can't follow me. You don't lose yourself, you can't follow me. You don't pick up your own cross, you can't follow me. You don't love me more than your own family, you can't follow me. These are the things that are indicators of being saved. You say, how can I do that, but I'm born in darkness? How can I make all these decisions? Where does that leave you? What I've been teaching you. If even repentance is a grace gift from God, where does that leave you? A humble heart. How do, I, how do I deny self? How do I love Jesus more than my own family? How does that happen? God will make it happen because with God all things are possible. Don't you remember the, 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 the apostles said, then who can be saved? That proceeded, with God all things are possible. That's who can be saved because it's ridiculous to think someone born dead on the sidewalk, dead as a doornail, can now be alive in Christ. It's impossible to think that way, is it not? It's incredible. It's mind-blowing. It's super hooperbalo. It's incredible. 
That's right. With God, all things are possible. Who can be saved? You're thinking rationally. With God, all things are possible. Our job is to get the gospel right. That's our job. Not to water it down, not to try to sneak our family and friends in the back door. Shh, Jesus is on break. Jesus is on smoke break. Jesus doesn't smoke. Right? Let's get him in. Hurry up, like the bouncer at the door. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Get this rubber stamp. You know, when you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter's there, oh, you got the rubber stamp, so let's go in. Oh, <laughs> where is that scene in the Bible? Another fabrication, stuff that's just fabricated and propagated by Hollywood and ridiculous, horrible denominations in our local area. Terrible, terrible things being projected as Christianity and people falling like this. Oh, yo. No, for real. You guys laugh, but I cry at night because of this stuff. Some of these people I know, some of these people are family of mine. Heartbreaking reality that people reject grace. But like the conversation happened this morning, you know what? How, you know how I can sleep at night? How you can sleep at night? If God the Holy Spirit can't convict these people, we never will. Amen? Honest to God. If He can't do it, we can't do it. Where does that leave us? Get the gospel right. Let Him be offended. Jesus was a stumbling block to everyone pretty much. Let them stumble over the truth. Let them stumble over the fact that, that you said you're totally depraved and you were born that way. Let them stumble over the fact that, that God is sovereign. Let them stumble. Let them roll down the hill. Pray for them. Say, I hope they get bumps and bruises. I hope their little fleshly, pathetic, dead self gives up. And God sees humility and says, now I can save you. stop because I'm going to explode here. Joey and Andrew are going to get all wet because my tears are going to shoot straight out <laughs> like lemons. To reject this stuff is fundamentally to reject grace. I hope you see that. This whole conversation, grace and works, we haven't even got to works proper really because that's easy once you understand grace. To reject this is to reject grace fundamentally. It's so important you see this. Again, verse 8. You're still Ephesians 2, right? Let's read it. Let's drive this home. I want you to see this verse for what it is, my friends. It's just impregnated. It's hard to, it's hard to explain. This thing is just jammed, supernaturally full of truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Thank God. Not as a result of works. Thank God again. So that no one may boast. Now, before I have to close here, in light of what we just noted, we can see now with this lens how grace now precedes good works. In other words, if, if we do nothing, God does everything. For anything to be good, it has to come from where? From above. For anything to be good. I don't care, I was thinking about this, I don't care if you're the nicest, kindest, loveliest old lady. I don't care. 
If you reject grace and you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a jackass. You're dead. You are an arrogant person who literally, I hate to say it this way, chooses and deserves the lake of fire. But they're so nice and, and sweet. So, you think if Satan walked on this stage, I wouldn't even exist anymore. All the ladies would be like... He'd probably say, nice vest. <laughs> Maybe he'd show up with one. See? You'd find out I'm really styling. <laughs> think about that. Once we understand the fullness of grace, and we understand that it's, everything has to do with God's good work, then works are easy, aren't they? Works only become difficult when you've mucked with grace. When you've taken grace out somehow, left something at salvation for con later consideration. Now there's confusion. Where does this verse fit? Where does that fit? That's why. People that struggle with grace and works have a perverted gospel. That I am convinced of. That I am absolutely convinced of. They may not even realize it. That's the funniest thing. How great is the darkness when they think they're in the light? They don't realize it. They may say the word grace more than I even say it. They almost lay claim to it. But the reality is they've actually rejected some or much of it at salvation. Oh, no, no, it's just a gavel. It's just a gavel. Really? What about natures? What about death and life? What about dominions? What about sovereignty? What about the th those real things? No, no, it's just about, we'll worry about those things later. What? 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 Jesus was a liar then, I guess. Look at verse 10. After Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Look at verse 10. Right into, guess what? You ready? Works. Right into the concept of works. This is where I think I'll have to pick my spot here. Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? Ah, oh, there it is. For good works. In other words, he says, I have to do all this because you'll never produce any good works. I have to do it all. You'll never produce any good works. Four good works, for a purpose, which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? Walk in them. Dead things don't walk, do they? Dead things don't get up and walk. But yet, from before you were even born, God ordained you, He chose you, and he says, I'm going to make you new in Christ Jesus. You're going to be my workmanship so that you'd go and do good works. And that you'll walk in them. But I have to make you alive for you to walk in them. Right? There are some who carry a gospel that stake a claim that a believer can never walk by choice, that a saved person with a perverted angle on salvation 
can never produce any good fruit whatsoever. That is completely antagonistic to verse 10 that follows directly behind the thought of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You were predestined to walk in good works. You are His workmanship. God doesn't screw up. If He makes you new, you're new. If you're His workmanship in, Je in Christ Jesus, guess what you're going to do? You're going to fulfill His purpose. Why? Because His grace never fails. That's Ephesians 2.10 up here on the board. For good works. When God saves a person, He creates them in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Ephesians 2.10 Believers are born again, John 3.3, 3, created as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Do you see how much scripture I'm giving you? Yeah. Created as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that are forevermore inclined to abide in righteousness, having eternal life itself. A dead thing doesn't have eternal life. When God saves a person, He creates them in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Believers are born again, created as new creatures that are forevermore inclined to abide in righteousness, having eternal life itself. What does John 3.16 say if you're saved? You have eternal life. Who has eternal life? The, the flesh or the new creature? The new creature does. That thing can't sin. All it wants to do is be pleasing to God. That's who we're supposed to identify with as believers. This thing, who will free me from it? Ooh, this thing is nasty. I mean, not like this. <laughs> Seriously, that's Romans 7, right? The inner man, the outer man. That's Romans 7. People are like, Romans 7? Yeah, read your Bibles. Oh. This is what I have seen. I'll have to, I have to pick a spot here, really. This is what I see when I read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the point on the board. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's, it's tremendous. Why would we ever question it? If he says, oh, he saved us. He saved us. What do you think we're going to do as when we're alive in Christ Jesus? What do you think our inclination is going to be? That's what I see when I read Ephesians 2, 8, and 10. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 10 talks both about salvation, uh, not both, but grace, faith, salvation, and works. All in the same thought. Imagine that. Grace and works. It only becomes difficult when you don't have grace down pat. I see exactly what the Spirit's been teaching us regarding the gospel since back in September of last year, when we started part one of the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. It is literally why he had me delete 1,400 hours of lessons off the website. He said, let's get this absolutely, positively straight, and let's go forward. Let's get it right, and let's do this thing. The simple truth of the matter is that we are indeed saved by grace through faith. And until we understand the fullness 
of God's grace, especially those aspects of it that are evidenced in Holy Scripture regarding God's plan for salvation, we won't understand the gospel. That's how it lines up. If you don't understand the fullness of God's grace, you don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand what God's grace does at true salvation, then you don't understand the gospel. If you sort of said, I don't like this one, I don't like that part, I like this part right here, and we'll deal with that stuff later, theologically thinking, we'll deal with that later, you've got a perverted gospel. You've got something that is antithetical to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, to his own words. I mean, how's it good news if we have to do something after the fact? Isn't, doesn't gospel evangelion, doesn't that actually mean the good news? Yeah. How's it good news then if we have to do something after we're saved to abide in life? Or is it better news? Is it a greater grace? Get it? Is it a greater grace to understand and concede that God does everything when he saves us? goes, bloop. What's a greater grace? Having to deal with it later, supposedly? Or understanding that that's everything that he did for us at salvation? And then, which gospel do we teach? The one that confuses people or the one that sets people free? Because the truth shall what? Make you free. Which one are we supposed to be preaching around here? Especially in this area, where it's salvation by works. And you can lose your salvation if you don't do if you do certain bad works. Talk about a perversion. Talk about a perversion. That is not the gospel that has never saved one soul ever in history of mankind. That gospel, if that's what you cling to, you're not saved. You can't be saved if that's what you cling to. What would you like me to say? If you don't understand God's grace and the fullness of it, then you don't understand the gospel. And we may even, in ignorance, as many of us have in the past, cling to a false gospel. One that likes the word grace, but dishonors it by rejecting some portion of it. Oh, everybody loves the idea of grace, don't I mean, who doesn't love grace? Free goodies, right? Like a balloon drop. Free goodies! Yeah, everyone loves that. <laughs> but, you know, if he showers you with his grace, he says, this is what I'm going to give you, and this is how I'm going to do it. You don't get to pick and choose. Today's, I'll close with this. Today's perverted gospel, and there's not only one, and I apologize on behalf of myself and Scott, if, if, you, if you sense that we're picking on one particular go- perversion of the gospel, we're not. We're not. All I know is what he's telling me, that people like to pervert grace. And if you pervert certain aspects of grace, your gospel looks like this. If you pervert other aspects of grace, your gospel looks like this. Some have a watered-down gospel. Some have a gospel by works. Some have some other weird gospel. Stand on your head and spit nickels. I don't know. 
People, man's a great inventor, right? Read Romans 1, speculation, inventing. So there's not only one perversion of the gospel. There's only one true gospel in any number of perversions. But what you'll find out is the perversions are always the result of some rejection of God's grace or some perversion of God's grace. Because that's how man puts himself as the sovereignty. I want to control God. Uh-uh-uh. If God gives me everything, I have to be subservient to him. I can do some of this work. Now he's a little bit subservient to me. That's the perversion. And this kind of grace accommodates man. While the true gospel of Jesus Christ is designed, obviously, to save him, it is not designed to accommodate him. It is rather designed to accommodate the righteousness of God. And I'll end with this. God is perfect righteousness. God is perfect righteousness. He's holy. He's sovereign. What else can we say, my friends? This is the perspective that we're to come at the gospel with. Don't ever belittle God and, and present a gospel that has a little God or a pathetic little man begging to save you. This is the sovereign, perfect, righteous God of the universe. He doesn't need to reconcile the man. We're the ones with the problem. We need to tell people that. We need to tell them that. With every fiber of our being, we need to tell people that. Amen? All right, let's watch a wonderful video.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another wonderfully placed lesson where your timing is always perfect. You are the sovereign in this vast universe, Father, and you always know best, regardless of how anyone may choose to speculate. We are so very grateful that you have solved the sin problem for us and that you have made it abundantly clear how simple salvation is. For as your word states, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. We know it's your choice, Father, and we appreciate it being so. For we are surely unable to discern such things for ourselves. We pray that these messages find ripe soil out beyond the four walls of this church and that those who hear the gospel of your Son Listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction and are saved. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.